Hello, Professor Gretchen Gerzina here. The conversation in this BP2 podcast was recorded before it became known that the 1502 document discussed by Miranda and Michael does not refer to John Blank playing at the funeral of Henry VII's son Arthur in 1502, but to John Blank playing at the funeral of Henry VII in 1509. The payment of wages in 1507 remains the earliest known reference to John Blank the Trumpeter. For more detail, go to johnblank.com's blog page. Welcome to Episode 5 of the BP2 Podcast on the Black Presence in British Portraiture Network. In this episode, we'll be discussing John Blank, the Black Tudor Trumpeter to the court of Henry VIII, who appears in the 1511 Westminster Tournament role held at the College of Arms, London. To discuss the work, I have two members of the network with me, the historian and author of Black Tudors, The Untold Story, Dr. Miranda Kaufman, who chose the work, and the art historian and director of the John Blank Project, Michael Ohajuru. I'll let them introduce themselves. Hello, Gretchen. Great to be here with you and Michael. Um, I'm Miranda Kaufman. Uh, I, as you say, uh, am the author of Black Tudors, The Untold Story. Uh, that was based on my doctoral research at Oxford into Africans in Britain between 1500 and 1640. So I did veer into the Stuart period then, and I am now veering into the Georgian period. And I, you know, I'm fascinated by all things Black British history and the Black presence in Britain, uh, the historical documents as well as the the artworks. And uh, I'm excited to to chat with my esteemed colleague Michael. <laughs> Gretchen, Miranda, I'm just thrilled to be here with you both today to discuss what to me is what a seminal text in English history or British history. Because my passion is the black presence in Renaissance Europe in general and Britain in particular. And John Blank is the image, is the ultimate image of, of the black presence in, uh, in England. Because it, it expresses so many things or it means so many things, as we'll talk over the next hour or two. The hour, not the next, the next few minutes or so. But I'm, I'm the director of the John Blank Project. This is a project I've brought together artists, historians, to reimagine John Blank, because sadly too many people c- cannot imagine a Black Tudor. So this is why I'm really excited to be here, to share my passion and a Black Tudor presence. Thanks to both of you. I, I'm so happy to have you both here for our discussion. But before we start, here's a brief description of the work we'll be looking at today. John Blank is celebrated as the first person of African descent in British history for whom we have both an image and a record. His image appears twice on the Westminster tournament roll, the 60 by 14 feet and three quarter of an inch wide parchment scroll commissioned by Henry VIII to commemorate the jousting tournament on the 11th and 12th of February 1511 to celebrate the birth of his son to Catherine of Aragon on New Year's Day of that year. It has been part of the College of Arms collection since it was deposited there in 1511. This 500-year-old document remains radiant after all those years. Its reds, greens and blues are still wonderfully luminous. The widespread use of gold leaf throughout the length of the roll 
really brings the images to life from its use in portraying the chains of office of the many figures in the role to the ceremonial and jousting tack on the horses and of course the main man himself Henry VIII. Each of his appearances is evidence by much use of gold leaf on his figure as well as his tents, his horses and his entourage to emphasise his magnificence. The role depicts three scenes from the tournament, the opening procession, the joust and the closing procession. John Blank and the trumpeters appear in the opening and closing processions. The role records the two days of jousting, pageantry and merrymaking. The trumpeters were the sonic punctuation of the historic event, their fanfares from dawn to dusk announcing the arrivals, openings, closures and retreats. They are there to proclaim the magnificence of Henry VIII's court, making it manifest to the watching crowds, from the common men and women to nobility from England and abroad, as well as ambassadors from the leading courts of Europe. The first time we see John Blanc, he is leading the procession of Henry's court, decked out in all their multicoloured, scrumptious finery, befitting Henry's ambitions for his court to be seen as amongst the most brilliant and fashionable in Europe at the time. Both times, John Blanc is the lone black trumpeter in a troop of six trumpeters parading in two rows of three. He is depicted in the middle of the rear row. Each of his fellow trumpeters rides a different coloured horse and harness combination. In John Blanc's first appearance on the role, he is depicted as sitting astride a grey horse with a black harness, a gold-coloured double-curved trumpet with the gold, red and blue royal standard in his right hand, guiding the horse with his left. John Blanc, like each of his fellow trumpeters, is wearing a yellow costume halved with grey over a white undergarment with a blue purse on his waist. Sadly, the images on the opening parchment membrane of the roll, unlike all the other membranes, have degraded over time. Particularly the trumpeters' faces have lost their definition, but John Blanc's image, despite its poor physical condition, is clearly recognisable. All six trumpeters are identical, with one exception, John Blanc. He has a brown face and he wears a turban in contrast to the white faces and bare heads of each of his fellow trumpeters. In fact, all the five white trumpeters have identical faces as if the artist was using a stock image. We believe this to be John Blank as court accounts refer to several payments being paid to John Blank, the black trumpeter. The first appearance, although it has much paint missing, and many might dismiss it as just a caricature, remains an image revealing not just his individuality, but also something of his character. He is a young man. His eyes are wide open with an earnest, determined look, while his cheeks are 
puffed out as he seems to be breathing a commanding, authoritative sound into his trumpet in recognition of the king's arrival. His turban in this first appearance is brown and yellow with stray locks of his hair coming through its sides. It sits at a slight angle on his head like a Rasta man's hat worn for religious reasons by Rastafari and seems to be covering a full head of hair, perhaps like a Rasta man. He has dreadlocks to cover. His second appearance is the most well-known and most sought-after image from the College of Arms collection. Again, he is part of a troop of six trumpeters in the middle of the rear row. However, there are differences from his first appearance. First, the quality of the image is much, much better than the first. This image is vivid, almost pristine. There is some ink missing from the trumpeter's royal standard, otherwise his image is perfect. Like the first image, it could be dismissed as a caricature. Nevertheless, it too reveals elements of his personality and character. Again, the earnest, determined, wide-eyed and puffed-up cheeks as he blows his trumpet to herald the arrival of Henry, now the champion of the tournament. As in the first appearance, he wears a turban, but this time it's green with yellow pattern. Some loose tufts of hair can be seen from the sides, as like the first image, the turban looks like a raster man's hat covering his dreadlocks. There is one significant difference between this second appearance and the first. His right hand holding the trumpet is white. His left hand on his horse's harness is hidden behind a standard. In his first appearance, both hands are visible and both are painted brown. Some argue he's wearing a glove in the second appearance, but this is doubtful as such fine gloves were only for nobility and the rich. Others argue that it's a mistake, an error. When the artist drew the six trumpeters, he depicted them as identical figures with white faces and hands, except for John Blank, where he changed the head alone, forgetting to paint his hand brown. Sadly, Henry's son, the infant Prince Henry, died a few weeks after the tournament, so perhaps the role was no longer examined and the mistake remained undetected. Instead, it was sent to the College of Arms, where it remains to this day, with the error uncorrected. Clearly, these two images by an English hand are not of the quality of other contemporary portraits to be seen from the Tudor court, predominantly by foreign artists. Nevertheless, they're significant. They give us an identifiable, ordinary working man at a time when portraiture was exclusively for the nobility. And not just any working man, but a black man who we can now name thanks to court records, making John Blank and the Westminster Tournament role a very special piece of black British history. Miranda, what inspired you to choose this very early portrait of a black man um, whose appearance, uh, two appearances on the roll, are really fascinating and especially kind of surprising, I think, to most people who would see the role today? 
Yeah, well, in a way, I didn't really have a choice uh, because um, I've looked, I've uh, focused on the African presence in the Tudor period, and these two images of John Blank in the Westminster Tournament role of 1511 are, in fact, the only known portrait of uh, an African person in England or Scotland or Wales or Ireland in in the 16th century. Uh, so I yeah I didn't really have any other choices of portraits from this period, uh, but it is very special in its own right. Well, Michael, let's hear how what you got started because this led to an entire project named no. after John Blank. So what got you rolling with this? Well, it was I started by looking at the Black Magus. There's a work in the V&A of the Magi from the early 16th century in Devon as a black king. And that really fascinated me. And, I'm, and that's what I did my final essay on in the OU. And that's how I got into the black presence in, in, uh, in England. And I met her with Miranda, because she, she was doing some work on, on, on black people in Tudor times. And she, 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 she knew more about John Blank than I did in the sense that I'd, he was a peripheral character. And he was just one of the characters, the black presence that, 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 that I used in my, um, in my uh, text to discuss blacks in, in, in Europe and Britain, in Britain. But she knew more about him than, than the text I'd read. So I was really intrigued. In fact, we got together and we had a thing called, if I remember from right, no, correct me if I'm wrong here, Miranda, it was Image and Reality, Black African Presence in Renaissance England. Because the, the image was my magus, because the black magus was a, was a fiction. It was a conflation, because the black magus never really existed. It was, it, it was a, a constructed image that, that I could understand. I could explain how it was constructed, why it was constructed. But John Blanc actually existed. And what was intriguing work with Miranda, I had literally hundreds of magnificent images. Even now, Miranda's frustrated at, at these images I had. Where she just had, where she just had these two images of John Blank, and the irony of it all was, none of my black makers existed. They were all, as I say, fictions. Where John Blank actually existed, and that was the wonder of him, uh, and, and, what, and what inspired me to to create my project to kind of celebrate that image. So, it was, as I say, it was working in, in, with Miranda in that image and reality that really brought John Blank to uh, to, to to my mind. We have lots of images uh, or imaginary images, as you've pointed out, of black people in British history. Some are real and some are not. But this very early one, as you say, is based on a real person. Can can either of you say a little bit more about what what is known about John Blank? These things are very elusive. Maybe Miranda. <laughs> yeah, I always got jealous when I was doing presentations with Michael because his slides in the PowerPoint always had loads of really pretty pictures and then it was my turn and I had some dusty documents. But those documents are those jigsaw pieces that we use to, to bring together some kind of biography, albeit incomplete, for this fascinating man. And uh, so, so we have we have these little fragments of a life, but that that they're very important because it's you know as Sydney Anglo I think first identified it's the uh, combination of the portraits and the, the the documentary records of John Blank's life and his times at at the royal court that allow us to you know to prove that the man in the tournament role existed and was a trumpeter at, at the royal court. So. 
uh, well, when Michael and I first met, I, I thought, we probably both thought that the first record of him in the archives was from 1507, uh, when he's paid wages for the month of November uh, at eight pence a day, which was 20 shillings for the month, which uh, sums up to 12 pounds for the year which was three times the average servant's wages at the time. But actually what's been thrilling about working with Michael is that between us we've we've managed to find more documents. So it was actually only recently and after I'd published um, what everything I thought I knew about John Blank that uh, Michael drew my attention to a record from 1502, which is much earlier because a lot of, a lot of the historians who've written about it kind of always suppose that John Blank was most likely to have arrived in England with Catherine of Aragon in her entourage from Spain when she came here to marry Prince Arthur in 1501. But nobody had any documentary record of him until 1507. But now there's a 1502 record. Well, now the record has always been there. Now we are aware of a 1502 record uh, from the funeral of Prince Arthur. So he didn't last long after the wedding and uh, he was buried in Worcester Cathedral. But we have a list of uh, the payments, the costs, the expenses for buying black mourning clothes for all the people who were attending the funeral, including the, Trump, the royal trumpeters. And John Blank's name appears on that list. So we can now place him in 1502 in Worcester. The next record we have is a similar one uh, that he he was actually present in Westminster Abbey and possibly the first African to have set foot in Westminster Abbey uh, in, in 1509 uh, where he's playing at the funeral of um, Henry VII uh, and then at the coronation of Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon who's now Henry VIII's queen um, you know, the following month. Um, and, and so again, we know that because there are payments for black clothing for the funeral and then scarlet clothing, celebratory scarlet for, for the coronation. Um, and, and actually, you know, those, those payments of wages as well are kind of carrying on in the background, uh, which is really significant because Often uh, when people think about um, Africans in British history, they assume that they were enslaved. Whereas if we have, you know, with John Blank, we have evidence he was being paid wages, which shows that uh, he wasn't enslaved um, by the royals, the royal court. So, uh, so, but uh, he wasn't happy with his wages. And the next document that we have, so we, we got a wealth of documents really compared to some of the, the individuals, uh, uh, African individuals, or even, you know, non-royal or aristocratic individuals in English history. Um, so, so uh, and this is another document that Michael and I found between us. So I found a reference to it in a, um, a biographical dictionary of royal musicians, like where historians, where different kind of uh, silos of research don't speak to each other. So you had your black British historians really interested in John Blank, and you had your music historians who just saw him as yet another musician. And they'd done all this work on the musicians, but the two groups hadn't spoken to each other. I, I think the fashionable word is intersectionality. Well, what we need is more interdisciplinary work, uh, and we're getting there. Um, so, so, yeah, so I found this reference and I excitedly contacted Michael and he just happened to be going to the <laughs> National Archives that very day. Uh, and Or you might even have already been there and checking your emails at lunchtime or something like that. I, I was actually on the way there when I took your call. Yeah, 
so that you know, I I was miles away, but he he was able to go in there and take call the thing up and take a photo of it, um, and and then he emailed it to me, and I transcribed it and sent it back, and there it was, and it was uh, quite a bold uh, petition to Henry VIII for a pay rise, and you know this is kind of it doesn't have a date on it, but it's presumably pretty early on in Henry VIII's reign because you know everyone knows Henry the Seventh was a bit of a miser and quite stingy, uh, but Henry the Eighth was a bit more of a big spender and particularly keen on music. So it was an opportune moment to, to ask for this pay rise, but even more opportune. And I, I love this. This is kind of uh, negotiation one hundred and one. Should you want to get a pay rise, wait for a colleague to die and then ask for their salary on top of yours. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, you know, uh, John Blank writes this petition, or has a, has someone write it for him, probably. Uh, when Dominic Justinian, who's this Italian trumpeter who works for Henry VIII, has just died, so he says, "Well, you know, I, I don't, I, I'm not. My current wage is not enough to support and keep me, uh, you know, in the style to which I'd like to become accustomed. So, please, can you give me Dominic Justinian's wages on top of my own?" and uh, and the other, the other 101 advice is make it simple for a busy man who'd rather be out jousting. And he says, you know, uh, at the end, he says, uh, uh, if you sign this piece of paper, that that will be sufficient warrant uh, for my wages to be to be raised, and that will go through the relevant departments, and I can get paid. And keep in mind, he gets it backdated as well. It's just <laughs> extraordinary. He gets it backdated, and it's almost like an arrogance in him. I think I love about that document. Henry Day actually signs it. Yeah, this yep. is micromanagement, in isn't the it? <laughs> you can imagine him having this massive pile of papers that he wants to get through quickly, so he can go and play tennis. And, and also, do you know, as part of the John Blank project, you know, as the strapline is, I imagine the jump, the black. I imagine John Blank as that's what the historians and and um, artists um, write or draw or, or reconstruct in their in their mind on the, the on paper. What I've, I what I'm intrigued by the idea of this. He's imagine you one can imagine that Henry valued he valued John to the, to the extent that did he jam with him as a musician because we know Henry was a bit of a musician you know he, he wrote things so I've got this idea and no one can tell me I'm wrong that they would have jammed, that they would have jammed together they respected him because when you look at John he looks quite I think quite a sensible serious bloke because he appears twice on the Westminster tournament role. This, the, on the, uh, the, the opening, perhaps just a few remarks what the Westminster tournament role was. This is a document that Henry had um, drawn up to celebrate a joust that he that he called together in uh, February 1511 to celebrate the birth of his son to Catherine of Aragon on New Year's Day that, that year. And he had all the great and good of, of Europe. The courts were all presented, the Pope, the Holy Roman Empire, the Spanish court, they were all there to see the glory that, that, that was Henry's court and leading the way as John Blank, because the, the trumpet was the kind of the vocabulary of the court. You know, trumpets, here comes the king, trumpets, there goes the king, trumpets, breakfast is served with the king, trumpets, breakfast is taken away. The, the, the fanfares were normal and he did it. And, and John Blank was part of that. And he appears twice, first at the opening, the opening ceremony, and then at the, at the closing ceremony. I know Miranda's eyes are going to roll over now because I'm going to tell about the, 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 what this doc give you some idea of the size of this document. It's a 60 foot scroll. It's about 60 foot long, 
yeah, 60 foot, and it's about 14 inches deep. And it represents three, three days, two days. It was, like, it was really, there's three scenes, the opening scene, the joust scene, and the closing scene. As I say, John Blank appears in the opening and the closing ceremony. To give you some idea of the magnificence on display in Henry's court, it's been put, it was put to me this way. The opening ceremony, if it was the Olympics, the opening ceremony would be two weeks. The actual games would be a couple of days. And the closing ceremony would be one week. Because it was not about the joust. It was about Henry showing off, showing off to his court. And John appears twice. The first time he appears, the image is not so good. It's quite a degraded image over time. He's lost... The, the, the lost the, some of the um, the ink and the and the, the, the has, has been. Oh, but that's my favourite one. Ex exactly. I think I'm gonna... it has more character in the face. I mean, when you say it's not as good, it, the quality of the sort of the paint and stuff has deteriorated. But as a as an image of someone's face, I think it's more soulful. You know, I, I'm going to put it to you, Miranda. The, there's a problem here. You and I have looked at John Blank for the last ten years. When we look at that that degraded image. We fill in what's not there. So we make it better in our head. We imagine it, although we don't feel you know, we imagine it because we want it to be. Because when you compare it to the closing ceremony, the closing ceremony is such a complete one. It's almost perfect in terms of you don't have to do it. You just look at it and it looks back at you. It's a it's almost perfect. With that first one, you have to work out. And it is, it's it's a bit more magical. And having seen it, having had the pleasure of seeing it in real life, it's it really is um uh a magical inst instrument, a yeah, magic, I mean, any, magical image. Any photographs that you see of it just do not do it justice because, you know, it's, and, and, you know, Michael and I had been writing and thinking and talking about it for years and we finally got in there, um, thanks to Bonnie Greer, really, but we finally got into the College of Arms to see this thing, you know, and it's kept rolled up and locked up, you know, in, in central London in the College of Arms. And, uh, you know, it finally got unrolled and, you know, my, Michael pretty much burst into tears and I was equally very happy to see it because it, the, maje the majesty of it being unrolled. But, you know, sadly, Henry probably didn't ever unroll it again because the sad thing is that having spent probably quite a lot of money on commissioning this amazing work of art that presumably he was planning on unrolling and showing off to you know, visit foreign visitors, ambassadors, his mates on a regular basis, he probably never looked at it again because it was all to celebrate the birth of his firstborn son, or he was going to, he was ne had named Henry. Uh, but, but, you know, not long after the tournament took place, that, that little prince had died and, and it probably was all rolled up, never, never to really have been looked at again. Uh, very sad, very sad. I, I'm so fascinated and I'm so envious that you have seen it in person because I've seen these photographs and images you've shared with me and others over the last several years. And it must be just astonishing to see the thing in, in the flesh, as it were. I'm just wondering, um, and I think listeners might wonder too, I mean, these images are interesting. The story about the documentation is fascinating and important. I'm just wondering if either of you can give us a sense of what his life would have been like. Is there anything that you can say about, you know, aside from his wages and his, um, what he wears, is there anything you can add so that the modern listener could get a sense of the kind of life a man like him would have had? Well, I think, I think there's a few ways into that. I mean, there's one more document to add to that, which is that we know that he got married 
um, in January 1512, so uh, a little just under a year after the the Westminster tournament, uh, and that the king gave him a wedding present of a really fancy outfit to wear, presumably on the wedding day, but you know at every good occasion after, um, made of violet cloth, and there's like a a whole outfit and a matching bonnet and hat and all of that. Uh, but that is the last trace we have of him in the records. But we'll go on to what his final fate might be uh, later on, maybe. But but I think I think um, so. I think I think one way into it is something we kind of already touched on: is what was the role of a trumpeter at the royal court? And as Michael said, it you know trumpet music punctuated the day, and it was you know a bit you know quite quite a, a demanding role to sort of have to play to do a little trumpet funfair. Fan- Funfair, do a little trumpet fanfare every time someone sort of entered or left the room. The trumpeters were, were also heralds, so they were quite significant characters in court. They would have been multilingual, and there's some talk of them being used as emissaries. Em, 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 you know, did he speak Spanish, Italian? He could well have done, and could taking messages to, to other to other courts. So it was quite quite an important position in in in, in the court. So I, I see him when you link that to the um, to the petition. Uh, I see him as, as quite a, quite an important character in in the, the common court. Obviously, he wasn't he wasn't a noble, but in terms of amongst the, the common people or the ordinary people, he was he was he he, he was he was quite a significant character and had some sense of his self worth as 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 a, a member of the court. And obviously, we don't know that much. Of, you know, we don't know enough about him. But I have a sense of what you read about him, and another another trumpeters across Europe and the roles that they played in, in various courts. And I have this idea of him being almost like he's got to a level now where he could move across any court in Europe, Swedish, Danish, Italian court, and he could have been a trumpeter. He could speak. You know, he could. He was. A, he was a musician. Yeah, and as we know, there were black uh, musicians, trumpeters, and other musicians at several European courts in this period and before and after. But I and I think I think sort of following up on from what you were saying about his status within within the sort of court servant servants, perhaps uh, you know, I think as a trumpeter, you know, because you're all part of the pomp and circumstance, you know, you have to be, you'll be wearing the finest clothes as all as part of a reflection of the glory of the king uh, and you know and being treated sort of commensurately and he uh you know we know you know at that Henry VIII coronation he's what he's given scarlet clothes to wear which are more expensive and fancy than red clothes about you know the cloth that was being used so he's in the kind of higher tier of that um expenses of list of of what clothes are being bought for everyone i mean i think we could also think a bit about where he's come from so we know that he came we we we're quite sure that he came from spain but whether he was born in spain uh to to african parents or uh, was born in Africa, maybe North Africa. There's some questions about may- whether the turbans that he wears, which are a really key element of these portraits of him, uh, you know, and they're different colours in in the different in the two images. Although that might be to do with aging pigments or something. But anyway, he's got these big fancy turbans on, which sets him apart from the other trumpeters. Um, and uh, you know, some people have have questioned whether that gives us an indication of a sort of North African heritage because of the style of headgear. Um, but it's not quite that simple because Henry VIII loved dressing up and loved everyone getting dressed up. But 
Okay, so this is, you know this is really fascinating. Um, the the this is a podcast about portraiture and black people and the black presence. So I'm wondering how this particular image um, links to Tudor portraiture in a larger, bigger sense. Since we're talking about paintings here, it, it, this is a really fascinating question because Holborn didn't arrive until 1520. This is 1511, nine, nine, ten years before Holborn arrives. So the portrait that we know today that defined the Tudor court wasn't quite there. But nevertheless, this is a, the, the, the artist righteously, we believe, did this. Was, it, was quite a competent portraitist, portraitist, can't get me right. Because there's a portraiture of the, there's a, there's a painting of the, uh, a depiction of the young Henry who's won the joust on the horse. And that's a very good likeness. If you compare that to other images of the day, it really is quite, quite good so when when you look at john blank that portrait there i used to dismiss it as a caricature or was like a cartoon but when you look at it in the set in in in, in terms of portraiture of the day it it, it does give you the sense of it and, and what's what's so special about it is that um, and this, this comes from jan marsh she talks about the fact that this is exceptional because this is a working man an ordinary man and that there are very, very few portraits of ordinary men, no, many of nobles and elites, Henry VII and so on. But to have a picture of an, a, a trumpeter who, I mean, with a name, this is special. There was a, a few days when I said, this is the first person, working class person in England who I have an image of. And then someone quickly reminded me, what about what Tyler? So, so we go, so, so what, 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 it's not the first, but okay, I can say it's one of the first. Well, I'm the first person. It's saying the first person, the first depiction of a black person who we know, who we have a record of, and there's almost a likeness of him. And, that, and that, that's when my project cuts in, because I work with artists, or they work, they produce work for me. They reimagine John Blank. They make him, uh, they make him more, more, more human, more, more like how we would see a, a black person. In fact, it's quite fascinating. Some of the images are almost modern images of black people rather than Tudor images of black people. Now, what does that mean? We have to come and see the Tudor project, the, the, my, the John Blank project, and you can see the, those different types of images. But this is, this is a, as I say, a fascinating image. And it really is, it's almost, well, it is, I believe, a portrait of, 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 of a black person. Miranda, could you say a little bit more about how this links to Tudor portraiture? Because you certainly done a lot of research and looking at these pictures so i mean i think that uh we're a bit we're kind of badly off the portraits in i mean there's obviously hans holbein but we had to import him uh in terms of portrait painting in 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 uh, in the tudor period you know there's not a lot of and there's not a lot of wealth of things here you know not not even images of black people but images of anybody and, you know, I'm quite jealous of, you know, Michael's remit. He looks more at sort of Europe as a whole. And there are there are so many more um, er, you know, earlier portraits of, of Africans or at least depictions, realistic depictions of Africans in European art as a whole in this period uh, than you find, um, you know, particularly in, in Italy uh, and the Netherlands, perhaps, uh, than you than you find uh, in England in this period. And um so I mean, it's almost a stretch to call this. I mean, it is a portrait, uh, but it's not, you know, your standard oil painting, and it's it's been located in a completely different context. Uh, but as Michael points out, um, 
in this whole 60 foot long vellum manuscript, uh, there are only kind of three identifiable individuals, Catherine of Aragon, Henry VIII and John Blank. And yeah, as he says, yeah, that's pretty special. The king, the queen, and John Blank. You know, and and but I mean, this again is it's a period. Whereas if you look at even at all the other trumpeters, they're like identikit figures. They've all got the same hair and the same face. Uh, but I think that we have to remember that in this in this period also, it, especially in this kind of heraldic art form, uh, people are identified not by a portrait, a recognizable face, but by the coat of arms mm. in the yeah, in, the, yeah. in the, the the shield above their heads or on their you know on their horses, so people are identified by the coat of arms above their heads. Yeah, no, or under, the, the, on there's, their there's, there's Henry the Seventh's deathbed, mm. and you can you, there are all there are all these drawings of 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 the the great and the good around the bed, and there's the bishop of I think it's York or, or some northern bishop, and you know he's the bishop because you've got he's got the bishop's mitre. And he's got his coat of arms. So you recognize him. That's why this is really special to know who he is. This is John Blank. So it really is quite, really, literally quite extraordinary that we, that we, have, we have, have a record of a working man who, speak, who, speak, uh, who, 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 who spoke out for himself. So I, for, for me, it makes it truly, truly, truly exceptional. And that's why I get excited when I look at some of the way it's been reworked and reinterpreted by, by so many people. Yeah, and the, the images that have been created for your John Blank project, Michael, are really wonderful. And I think art is such a fantastic way to connect with the history, but you know, also with the art history. And, of course, um, the portraits in the Westminster tournament role are painted by a white man. Uh, and it's, it's nice to see John Blank depicted by, by modern black artists as well. Uh, but also it's fantastic when you take the project into schools and you get school children imagining John Blank on paper as well. No, it's, it's fascinating. And just, just, I'll just finish up, just, you mentioned schools. We, we out of the hours of bays and sucklings. The idea of, because um, we, we, we get the kids to draw John Blank and then make a statement, I imagine John Blank. And one of them wrote... I imagine John Blank as a strong man because he can ride a horse and blow a trumpet. You know, and I've been working on this project for almost about 10 years. I never thought about the physical strength it takes to be in a march and blow, <laughs> blow that trumpet and do everything in order. You know, to have the physical strength of that. So no, it's, it's, it's an image which still gives in terms of the way, when we look at it and we reinterpret it. No, so I think it's a, well, I would say it, wouldn't I? It's a, it's a fantastic image, an exceptional image. And the whole tournament role is, is a statement of, of, of Henry VIII's Britain. is just, just extraordinary. So what, what, what is particularly fascinating to me, who've done no research on this, but read all of your res wonderful research on this man and his, and his uh, place in Henry VIII's court, is that it, this is the kind of image that just by seeing it has to change our perception of what Britain was like. We have, a, we have ideas and images of heraldic past and, and a very white past, but this particular image from 500 years ago has to force us to look at that history very differently. Don't you agree? Definitely. And, you know, although I love my old documents, you know, an image can speak a thousand words and it is, 
you know, I, I have I have the, the images on my phone and, you know, pre-COVID at least, I was known to sort of thrust them in people's faces whenever I could, saying, look at this. Just, yeah, just look at this. I, I remember the first, when I saw this with Bonnie Greer when we were recording her, um, her um, In Search of Black History podcast, and we both started singing in nothing like the real thing. <laughs> it's just it's that kind of image it's just so dramatic because in a field of a little bit of front of whiteness and almost uniformity bang this black face this this happy black face just doing his thing as a trumpeter is just glorious this does and I, I i feel a bit sad here as an anorak here because it's i still smile when i see it it still makes me smile because it's 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 a statement about about Britain that that predates the Windrush, <laughs> that predates Victoria, it, it predates slavery, and you've got a black man there just doing his thing. Oh, it's a fan, two fantastic images, two fantastic images. Well, this has just been so fascinating. I, I wish we had another hour to talk about these images and John Blank himself. It's been such a pleasure to talk to both of you again, and it has certainly improved my understanding of John Blank and his time. So thank you, Miranda Kaufman, and thank you, Michael Ohajuru. We'll end episode five of the BP2 podcast with a reading about John Blank from Miranda's book, Black Tutors, The Untold Story. He gripped the horse tightly with his thighs, steadying her against the shock of the trumpet's blast. It had taken a while to master the art of playing the trumpet on horseback, but now he was doing just that, as one of the king's trumpeters at the Westminster tournament. King Henry had decreed two days of jousting to celebrate the birth of a son to his wife, Catherine of Aragon. He had also commissioned the heraldic artists of the College of Arms to record the proceedings on vellum. As Blank watched the king charge toward his opponent, he considered that the artists might need to use a bit of licence when they recorded the scene for posterity. Best to show the king in some feat of great chivalric prowess, such as breaking a lance on the helm. It didn't really matter whether it had actually happened. He wondered how he would appear in the vellum roll on horseback amongst the other trumpeters, of course, dressed in the royal livery of yellow, halved with grey. The artists would enjoy painting the brightly coloured tossel banners with their quartered fleur-de-lis and lions hanging from their trumpets. The instruments themselves would be flecked with gold. But would they remember his turban, which set him apart from his bare-headed companions, How would they depict his dark skin? It was not a pigment they would be accustomed to using. Indeed, it might be the first time anyone had painted a black Tudor. I do hope you've enjoyed this episode of the BP2 podcast. If you have, then please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. There you can keep abreast of the latest shows and importantly help spread the word helping others find our podcast by leaving a review and a rating. Goodbye until next time, and thanks for listening.